Welcome to a special edition of the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. This episode was recorded with Laurent Bannock from the IOPN, the Institute of Performance Nutrition, and he has generously provided us with the recording so that we can also share it on our podcast. This happened in response to a number of guests suggesting that I should in fact be recorded or interviewed for the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the discussion that I had with Lauren and that you tune in again next week when we talk to Alois Rosario. Hi everyone, I am really excited today to be speaking to Dr. Elizabeth Broad. Now, some of you will know Elizabeth well because she is a huge celebrity <laughs> in the in the professional sports nutrition field. And I joke, but I don't joke because, and I mean this in the polite way, of course, but you've been around for quite a long while, haven't you, Liz? Yes, I am a bit of an old, old timer. <laughs> <laughs> A legend in my own lunchbox. You're a classic, Liz. Let's just, let's just leave it at that. <laughs> so today we're going to have a conversation that I know is central to your heart and your work. Uh, you spend a lot of time working in this area. And also it's, a, it's an important area for a number of reasons that I think will come out of this discussion that we have today that I think doesn't just apply itself uniquely to Paralympic athletes, which is what we're going to talk about today. And obviously nutrition and, and lifestyle and so on, but primarily performance nutrition strategies that can impact the, the, the health and the performance of a para-athlete. But, but also, uh, as, I, as I was just inferring there, this actually applies with a bit of an adaptation to the thought process to a lot of different people. And the reason why I'm saying that is because I think that, that this is a particularly good example of why context or contextualization or individualization or personalization matters when we when we look at sport and exercise science particularly sport and exercise nutrition which of course is done on sort of you know pretty generalized basis mm -hmm. which we have talked about many times on this podcast about how the generalization of of that information that evidence isn't necessarily relevant to, for example, elite athletes who tend to be outliers. And of course, when we now discuss power athletes, that's an even more extreme example mm -hmm. of just how far away <laughs> we are from a yeah. generalized understanding of nutrition strategies that, um, that we should be thinking about to support training adaptations and performance and so on. So before we just get into that conversation, Liz, why don't you just give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself and and who you are, uh, I think that would be a great place to start this conversation. Mm, thanks, Lauren. I'll try and keep it pretty short because, as you say, I'm a, a bit of a classic. Um, so <laughs> I graduated as a dietitian in the late 80s in an era where sports nutrition really wasn't. It, was, it certainly wasn't taught in dietetic courses. There weren't people who worked you know, hand in hand with athletes on a regular basis. It just wasn't a topic of discussion and certainly wasn't anywhere near the forefront of my mind. So I started working as a clinical dietitian and fairly quickly realized that a nine to five job was not for me. I'm not geared that way. And over the the kind of subsequent four, four or five years, an opportunity arose to do a fellowship at the AIS, the Australian Board in Canberra, with Dr. Louise Burke, who's been a guest on your podcast and is a legend. And so I was able to get that opportunity in 1994 
it was a 12-month opportunity where you basically thrown in the dent. And if you found that that was something that you enjoyed, then hopefully you were able to progress on from there. And when I started, it was the first year that the Australian Institute of Sport had a para track and field program. And so they were one of my responsibilities. And so that was my first entry point to Paralympic sport. They also had a lot of camps-based programs that came in and, and being the, the little duckling, I was the one that had to deliver all of that information. So you start trying to look into the literature and find out a bit more about you know, what, what do I talk to them about? And there was pretty much nothing. <laughs> and then you know, Australia got the 2000 Games and eventually they were able to put on a new position under Louise, which I was fortunate enough to get. So move on. I started a master's in exercise science. And as my master's project, we actually looked at the effects of heat on shooting performance. So we had the six Australian Paralympic shooters for the Atlanta Games come into a heat chamber. And we did some work with really early stage of the cooling vest and trying to cool them down in hot conditions because they're expecting pretty hot conditions in Atlanta. And again, you have to do a lit review for a, a master's project like that. And so my literature, literature review was like, hmm, okay, there's not a lot out here. <laughs> and each of the athletes had a different disability different impairment and had physiological kind of parameters that they were working within. And so I couldn't get it published. You know, it's a end of six, number one, and they were six very different individuals and no one would publish that type of work. So it's still, the data still sits in my master's thesis. Then, you know, still at that point in time, there wasn't a lot of opportunities in para-sport. So I followed my nose. I did a lot of different things. I moved to Scotland after the 2000 Games because my husband had the position as head triathlon coach for Scotland. Did my PhD under Stu Galloway at the University of Stirling, which was a fabulous opportunity that just got presented to me, which I couldn't say no to. Worked in professional sport, worked in with a lot of Olympic athletes, uh, went back to the AIS eventually. And come 2011, 2010, 2011, the Australian Paralympic Committee wanted to buy out half of my role at the AIS to work with their Paralympic leading into London. And that's really, so you're now looking at a 14-year time gap from the time I first started to, to the time you really started to get a lot of momentum in that space. And I, I kind of never turned back after that. I did another few years finished in 2013 and ended up moving to the U.S. for a brand new position at the U.S. Olympic, now Paralympic Committee. They changed the name and uh, working with U.S. Paralympics full time. Uh, so I did that for six and a half years. So, yeah, it was massive opportunities that you just had to wait and be patient for because they were few and far between in the early days. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, yes, that's that's a podcast in itself. I think if we were to delve into all the different aspects, all the different chapters of, of your journey. And of course, we're going to, I guess we're going to summarize aspects of your, your sort of learnings and knowledge on that. And of course, you've, you know, you've published uh, a great book of which I have the second edition sports nutrition for Paralympic athletes, and you have authored and or co-authored a variety of, of papers so that uh, people 
like myself, who uh, in the past have worked with some para athletes, did not have to scratch my head going, what the hell do I do here <laughs> uh, to the level that you had to back it, it, it literally in sort of day one in the body of knowledge that, that we can find on this topic, yeah. not to exclude, of course, things like these podcasts. And you've got your own podcast dedicated to this topic, which I will add to the things that I link to in the show notes on, uh, mm-hmm. on our IOPM podcast version of this discussion that, that we're going to do. But you, you made a, a comment there about you weren't able to publish your master's thesis. I, I, to mm-hmm. me, that's criminal f- for a variety of reasons. And I, I bang on about this a lot on, on this podcast because my own obsession is, it, and my doctoral research was on you know, the gap that exists between science and practice and how we bridge it. And one area that I looked at, of course, was how we create a body of knowledge, evidence, where do we get that stuff from, why we should look at things like N of one case studies, you know, particularly in an elite context as being perhaps more valuable than some people will look at it when you see these hierarchies of evidence that are bandied around. And of course, it is absolutely correct, solid, robust science to try and get as much statistical power and, you know, have as many participants Mm -hmm. and so on, but it does depend on what you're actually trying to learn. And again, it's not just about numbers and data or, or at least statistical type data. There's qualitative data. There's the needs, the preferences, the likes, the socioeconomic circumstances of an individual practical matters, which is obviously important in this situation is something that comes up all the time. And yeah, I mean, maybe we should get your your thesis published. <laughs> I think, I think, I think, I think there's some uh, some honor in us attempting to do that, Liz. But, but just on that point, there, what are your thoughts about the evidence that exists there, and the, and the barriers that we have to getting the information that we need, so that we can have a much better understanding of of how to support Paralympic athletes and I know you've made plenty of efforts yourself to include your new podcast of course yeah yeah I was listening to a podcast you did recently with Christy Elliott Sale who was and you asked her the question well what's the definition of, an, of a female and she said well you know there's multiple definitions well similarly with para there's an, an another whole layer of multiple definitions you've got different impairment you've got a multitude of different sports and obviously how you apply that in that sporting context depends on the physiological demands of the sport the the type of environment that it's competed in the level that they're playing at all of those things so you've got those layers you've got their impairment and the impact that that has on their physical function but then you also have a layer of medical and other underlying factors that can come with their impairment or can be separate to their impairment and so for example you could have someone who had who has a spinal cord injury from a traumatic event a motor vehicle accident or a, a motorbike accident who in the process they also had a fairly major injury to their gut and as a consequence, you have a, a number of gut-related issues that also play a part of the nutrition recommendations and, and their response, which is a little separate to their actual impairment, but they interact with each other. And 
I think, you know, when I went to write the book, a lot of people said, why are you writing a book for sports neutral para athletes? Isn't it exactly the same as it is able-bodied athletes? I'm like, well, the assumption is that it is, but it's how you apply that information and what assumptions you make in knowing that information. And the biggest deficits, well, some of the biggest deficits we have in the Paralympic space is that a lot of the sports aren't described well from a physiological perspective. So you look in the literature, what are the physiological demands of football? There's hundreds of papers that go through the physiological demands of women's football, men's football, how much distance they cover, yada, yada, yada. You look for that in a Paralympic space, what are the physiological demands of goalball? Most people will look at you and go, never heard of this, <laughs> let alone these are their average heart rates. This is the amount of work that they do. This is the type of training. So you can't apply your nutrition knowledge without having an understanding of what the physiological demands are because that drives a lot of the decisions you make in performance nutrition and so you know that's really where the kind of the book tries to sort of pull down a little bit more into what are some of the things you have to think about in trying to transfer that information that we have in able-bodied into different aspects of a Paralympic athlete perspective yeah. And most of the time it's a it's an end of one problem solving exercise where you just have to think logically but also be willing to think really flexibly about and and holistically about all the different parameters that you may become. Yeah, I I mean look it it's great because you know we've moved so far forwards from where we were as a discipline and and by discipline sport and exercise nutrition that you know 10 years ago had picked up a fair amount of momentum, I guess, in the last 10 years. But, you know, you go back 15 years or so, it's, like you say, it didn't even exist. Yeah. Uh, and we're still, we're still, I mean, the, the you know, year on year, the explosion of, of research, uh, numerous guests in the past have talked about this, but I think particularly when Graham Close was on, who's been on many times, of course, where we talked about his group's uh, paper to podium paper, which was particularly mm. important, I feel, in terms of a practitioner looking at the evidence and differentiating not just the quality of it but the relevance of it which is my new word you see Liz I, for years I've been obsessed with the word context but actually mm. I think relevance is my new the new one I'm gonna have tattooed to my forehead like is it relevant though you know it might be great it might be fantastic high quality sports science research but you know how is this relevant to my power athlete and I think yeah. on reading well, based on a conversation we had before this podcast and on reading some of your papers, some of which I've, I've read again recently, it just really hits home to me, you know, the importance of individualization, that N of one thing that you've just mentioned. And yet the gap between that and all of the research that exists out there, you know, is, is, is pretty interesting. But that is, that is why it is so important for us as practitioners to be able to not only source the right evidence, but learn how to translate that into the applied context, which of course is why mm. the likes of you and me are having these sorts of conversations to try and add to that to that process. Yeah, because yeah, you know, I think a lot of practitioners don't have the bells and whistles to, you know, the simplest question I get asked is how do I work out the energy requirements of my athlete? And if you were in a research setting, you go, oh, I, you know, maybe we could do some do a, a resting metabolic rate. Maybe maybe we could do a DEXA scan. Maybe we could do this. Maybe we could do that. But a practitioner, particularly a private practitioner, doesn't have access to all of that stuff. And so you have to make decisions that are logical 
in using parameters that are the best thing that you have. And I think that's the other part is to make it, to, to kind of bring things down to a point where a, a, a practitioner with very little bells and whistles can still make good decisions and have that athlete's best interests looked after. And I think the one thing that you learn with para-athletes is you ask them a lot of questions. And I don't know that you do that a lot with, there's assumptions that are built into working with able-bodied athletes. You kind of assume that they all operate in a similar sort of framework. Their body works normally, <laughs> whatever, whatever normal is. In a para-athlete, you can't make assumptions. And so that you, you learn to ask a lot of questions. And, and what you realize is that those athletes actually know a lot about them. And they're often part of the problem solving because you say, this is what I'm trying to do. This is where I'm trying to, where do you think we need to make a change or how do you think we can get there? And so I think that's, you know, that's one of the things that I've learned the most in working with para-athletes is that engaging them in the conversation and being able to explain to them why you're trying to achieve whatever you're trying to achieve is and bring them along in that journey and, and as part of that conversation. And it, it means that you end up with a better outcome because you're not telling them to do something. You're working with them to find a better solution. Absolutely. You know, I, I talk a lot about the practitioner's toolbox. We have literally, uh, I guess, the well-understood version of the term tool, which in our world might be DEXAs, skinfold calipers, that sort of thing. But I also mean that to include knowledge, critical thinking skills, coaching skills, communication skills, all these sorts of things. And the bells and whistles that we that we look at and we see in, in research laboratories or, or what have you still doesn't compare to the ultimate bells and whistles that we have, that is our, our brain and our eyes and our mouth and so on. And yet all of these things, of course, like any tool, you need to know the strengths and limitations of those tools. And, you know, that is that is perhaps a, a weakness in itself mm. is is where, you know, people don't necessarily realize where they, they fit in that spectrum of competence or mastery yep. or, or whatever. But look, let's just dial this back to something. You, you mentioned the podcast I did with Kirsty and Jose on nutrition for female athletes. And yep. what I do with most of my podcasts is we try and define what we mean about something and then, you know, sort of unpack mm. the evidence in that in that context. So you've already given us a, just a little bit of a hint there, but when, when you're talking about a para athlete or when somebody's looking at your books or papers, what, you know, what, what does that term actually mean? Yeah. Great question. So I think a para athlete is an, for me, it's an athlete with an impairment and I choose my words fairly carefully. If you look at the international Paralympic committee, they actually have recommendations but rather than using athlete with a disability, they prefer the term athlete with impairment. But the term para-athlete can be used as a, an all-encompassing term for an athlete with an impairment. Now, that impairment can be a physical impairment. So it could be an amputation, a missing limb, could be a spinal cord injury, it could be cerebral palsy, anything that produces, even club foot is considered to be an eligible impairment. And you can go to the International Paralympic website if you really want to get technical about what an eligible impairment is. But it's anything that creates a physical challenge that may be different to a fully able-bodied individual. There's also vision impairments. 
and intellectual impairments. So some sports that are played at the Paralympic Games include individuals with an intellect. And there's a very specific way of classifying those athletes. It's to do with their IQ before the age of 18 for an intellectual impairment. But it can also be impairments like a traumatic brain injury where you may not be obvious to the to the, the non-discerning eye that there's something else going on, but there's a, a really interesting dynamic in terms of the interaction between the neurology, so the nervous system, and then the muscle. So the nerve may be saying, do this, and the muscle's not responding in the same way that it, sh- it should be. So yeah, so to cut a long story short, a para-athlete is an athlete with an impairment, whether that be physical, intellectual, or vision. And that's that's fascinating. You know, we we recently, of course, we've been talking about the differences that potentially exist between males and females. And of course, it depends in what context we're talking about that we've covered in a number of podcasts. Uh, we've also talked about differences in terms of needs, particularly like protein, for example, and or how to bring about optimal training adaptations, particularly as it relates to muscle hypertrophy in older populations, for example. We've covered that. We've looked at uh, vegan, vegetarian, plant-based athletes. Mm-hmm. But this this area is, I think, it's interesting because although you're discussing the various descriptors of impairments that ticks a box for an official competition, you know, as you walk down any high street and you look at people, you can imagine that many of these people are ticking various impairment boxes, whether it's stress, anxiety, depression, uh, long COVID, you know, suffering from an injury from falling off a bike. So it may be a temporary impairment, recent surgery, hip replacements, you name it. And yes, they may not be elite athletes, but they still might have ambitious plans to be physically fit and active for, for whatever reason. So, of course, that's that's where I think this conversation lends itself to a slightly broader range of, of clients than, than just that, that para-Olympic title. Nonetheless, yep. this is where the interest lies. Now, you've talked about impairment types. You've described some of those impairment types, and that I find particularly fascinating. And we could spend hours talking about these different things. But in one of your papers, which is the key nutritional strategies to optimize performance in para athletes, you, you got a very uh, useful table in there, which is on factors affecting nutrition status and performance. And you also talk about, we're looking at the pretty well-defined nutrition strategies that exist to support training adaptations and performance. And of course, we've talked about issues of generalization and so on, but the particular factors that may have a a negative impact or at least an impact that you need to consider as it relates to specific causes is what I found particularly interesting as I was going through this paper Mm -hmm. of yours. And uh, what I thought would be quite useful at this point in the podcast would be for us to uh, address some of those key key factors and you could help us understand what some of those potential causes could be, what potential impact that might have on performance and maybe some potential solutions or strategies or perspective. Of course, the big one, the big one, which you've already referred to is how on earth do we deal with a reduced metabolic rate and energy expenditure in in these particular impairment types Mm. it's it's a real challenge and you know even if you take someone with a spinal cord injury so we'll we'll just focus on that as an as an example of the spectrum that you have the spinal cord injury can be anywhere along the spinal cord so some individuals will have their spinal cord injury at the lower 
part of the spinal cord and may actually ambulate perhaps with uh, the help of some, some crutches or some braces on their legs. They may actually walk. So not everyone with a spinal cord injury is wheelchair requiring, at least not for the mainstay of their of their day-to-day activities. And then you have someone with a spinal cord injury at the at the cervical level where they they can sometimes even have trouble moving their hands, let alone their arms, and and they, their lungs and their ability to breathe on their own can sometimes, you know, certainly if if they're very high, you don't generally don't find these people as athletes though. And they have difficulty breathing on their own. And so if you look at, well, how do I work out their energy requirement? And the spinal cord injury may be complete. So it's a complete severing. So there's no sensation, no movement whatsoever, or it may be incomplete. And so the more, the higher the level of the lesion, the more muscle. And by virtue of that, theoretically, the lower their resting metabolic rate will be seeing as resting metabolic rate is primarily driven by the amount of muscle they have. However, it doesn't always, there's no logical kind of, oh, I applied a 20% reduction for someone with a T level, a T6 level, so apply a 30% reduction in requirements. There's no set proportion of resting, expected resting metabolic rate into play there. And the other thing is that with someone with a, so I've had a, a for example, a wheelchair tennis player quad tennis player, so high-level spinal cord injury, spinal level, quadriplegic. But at rest, he, his leg would jiggle up and down. So this is someone who has no sensory level at their leg, no voluntary movement of their leg, and yet their leg would sit and, and have muscle contraction where it moved up and down. And so that's obviously expending energy, but how do I calculate that? So that's just one example of, you know, this, it's really hard to measure proportionality of muscle atrophy and then apply that in equation to, to automatically change the, the resting metabolic rate for something like Harris-Benedict. Now, you could use something like Schofield if you can get a DEXA scan, get an accurate measure of lean body mass, and that's probably the best that you can do. But that requires you to have the ability to get that exit scan done. And so that's just one example from one subgroup of, of parapopulations. But if you look at any of other subgroup, there's a spectrum. And it's energy required, you know, amputees, particularly lower limb amputees, you can say, okay, well, they're missing some of their legs, so there's less muscle. So, you know, if they're below the knee, you maybe take off 5% for their energy requirements or if they're above the knee single leg maybe you take off at 10 percent i'm just plugging numbers out of the air but then when they walk they walk with an unsteady gait with their prosthesis and that increases energy demand so whilst there may be a reduction in resting metabolic rate the activities of daily living requirements may actually be higher due to the instability of their gait yeah i mean of course you know as i'm thinking about this the challenge to that to the answer to that question if 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 we look at it as a one off you know like it's sort of approached from a i need to solve this problem and it's a bit of a lottery situation i either get it right or i don't and you know this is seconds before their competition but the reality is hopefully you're working with your your mm-hmm. athlete for a, a period of time where 
you're working out the best possible starting point and then you have a process of uh, not just an initial but a continuing process of assessments you know sort of prescribing advice recommendations you monitor you support and that cycle goes on and on and on and you mm-hmm. tweak I love that word tweak you tweak yep. you know in the in the right direction and obviously hopefully your athlete stays with you as a practitioner throughout that process and and so on but you know again that's the, an issue I think when we look at textbooks or papers you know it's very static but the reality Mm. is that ongoing relationship is a I hate the word trial and error but it is effectively it is yeah I mean it is a lot with with para athletes and I do a lot of reverse engineering which is instead of saying this is what I think your energy requirements are I go well what are you eating and are you weight stable that gives me a bit of a ballpark to work with and then you kind of work backwards from trust in what they're eating accurately <laughs> so yeah. you kind of have to but that again that comes into the skill as a as a nutritionist as a dietitian in being able to develop a rapport where you develop that confidence fairly quickly and develop that ability to to really tease out the truth and the longer you can have that relationship the better it becomes because that trust that knowledge transfer becomes you know it really enhances that that ability to work with them and and particularly at the pointy end you know the the real performance enhances then you can you can do a lot more with that over time absolutely so you you you've sort of briefly inferred the issue of of reduced muscle mass um, and i find this area particularly interesting mainly because in my mind's eye i'm thinking back to a para athlete i once worked with many years ago now who was a canoeist a sprint canoeist and I mean, this guy was a physical beast from the waist up, immensely mm. powerful, and, and just looked like he could really handle himself in the water or otherwise. But from the waist down, because of the nature of his impairment, had practically no muscle in his lower limbs, particularly in one of the legs where the main impairment was. And that, for me, at the time, you know, didn't feel like it was a massive problem because he was a canoeist. He wasn't using his legs, you know. But of course, I now realise that there are other implications um, that a reduced muscle mass might have on the overall performance in people who aren't necessarily uh, a sprint canoeist. What What are your thoughts on that? And what are the sort of varying causes of reduced muscle mass, and how might that impact performance? Uh, oh, there's most of the reduction in muscle muscle mass is related to the neural drive and the ability to contract that muscle. And so that can be interrupted through, as, as we've talked about already, a spinal cord, uh, cerebral palsy or any form of brain-related injury. So cerebral palsy is a, a damage to the brain at birth or prior to, just prior to birth. But you can also equate that to an acquired brain injury where someone has had a traumatic brain injury of some sort. And as a result, they have a lack of neural drive to a particular muscle groups. And because of that lack of drive and also the lack of turn feedback from that muscle, it, it atrophies because it simply can't be used in the same way. So there's a lot of things that can cause that atrophy. Favoring a leg is also like, if you look at amputees, if you're a, an above the knee amputee you actually have a lot of muscle atrophy on that side and you also have an impact on bone density on the side of that um, because you get less load bearing capability and less less capability to 
to contract whole muscle group. So they're all factors and, and that influences energy expenditure, but it can also influence a lot in terms of train, trainability and fatigue. So if you look at them in their home environment, for example, so I've done some, particularly in the early days I'd do cooking sessions, I might have a bunch of amputees and they're all wearing their prosthetic, but they get tired. And if, you, if you've got them standing to do work a lot of the time, then they simply get more fatigued because having to keep themselves stable in an upright position with that imbalance of muscle capability, it actually is quite neurologically fatiguing. So that's you know, one area where you have to kind of think about, okay, well, how does this impact them in their home life just as much? as how does that potentially impact their sport? I did a podcast uh, episode with a very well-renowned uh, track and field coach, para track and field coach, Irina Dvoskina. She was originally Ukrainian. And she said, if I have a single leg amputee or someone with a fairly major impairment on their left side, I won't, I won't get them to run a 400-meter event because of the curve that they have to run on that on that side that is the weaker side it creates too many stresses in their hips and and the other parts of their body that she actually is concerned about their ability to be mobile in an older age and so she's like they run the 100 and the 200 i don't let them run the the 400 so you know i think that's that's a really interesting perspective of looking after their health and welfare in later years, as well as looking at them in their competitive year. And of course, as performance nutritionists, we're obsessed with anything that can either increase or optimize, you know, this functional body mass, the the strategies that we have to to support training adaptations, to bring about hypertrophy, strength, power, etc., is something we know quite a bit about. And of course, we we've even, as I mentioned, we've we've delved, you know, we've delved in previous episodes on the various strategies that can ameliorate muscle loss, whether it's from time off training through injury and and aging and all these other things that that uh, are fascinating in themselves. But in this particular context. Because nutrition is obviously the thing that we're particularly interested in here, you know, when we're dealing with reduced muscle mass, there are a number of implications there, I would imagine, as it relates to the protein and carbohydrate and particularly the glycogen storage and resynthesis mm. factors. What, what are the areas there that we should be mindful of as, as nutritionists with that client? Well, I think the thing that you've got to go back to is where is that data coming? How do we know what protein requirements are? How do we know what carbohydrate requirements? And basically, they're done. Studies are done predominantly on runners and cyclists with big quad muscle because it's great to stick a needle into and get a bit of muscle out of. <laughs> and so, you know, you're dealing with a pretty big muscle group, and it's you know, if you look at at research that's done on upper body muscles, no one will do a muscle biopsy. There's one study back in the 80s that, that did a muscle biopsy of an upper body muscle. Because there's a lot more proximity to big blood vessels and, and nerve fibers, a lot of people just don't want to do biopsy that muscle. But do we know that those muscles work in a similar way to a big quad muscle? Do we know that it, it uses protein in the same way? Do we know 
that it stores carbohydrate in the same way. And if you look at the, the literature back in, in terms of muscle, they, they, and glycogen, they talk about glycogen and storage capacity per kilogram of wet weight muscle. So it's proportional to the volume of muscle that's there. And so if you look at someone who's using predominantly upper body muscle, can you make the same assumption that they can store the same amount of glycogen for a, an endurance event? So take a wheelchair marathon, for example. Now, get, bearing in mind that a wheelchair marathon is, is completed in a faster rate than a foot-based marathon, depending on the, you know, the wind and, and the terrain, you're looking at maybe sort of 90 minutes, give or take. That for the higher level races to up to two hours for the perhaps more physically challenged uh, races. So if you look at the marathon, they say, you know, theoretically for endurance, if you've got a well-stocked muscle, it should last you two hours, give or take high intensity, continuous endurance exercise. If it's a smaller muscle group, then surely it can only store less total amount of glycogen. And would that mean that they run out faster? So does their muscle glycogen last them the same length of time, a small muscle group? And if you talk to the athletes, they say, yeah, I run out at about 90 minutes. So could they benefit from carbo loading? Quite possibly. Could they benefit from consuming carbohydrate during that event? Quite possibly. How are they going to do that is, the, is then the next question. But so, you know, I think it's, I haven't really answered your question, but you've got to go back to where does that research come from? And does that, at how do we then transfer that in terms of how we relate that to a Paralympic athlete? And I've asked Drew Phillips, I've asked Kevin, I've asked Luke Van Loon, if you had someone with a spinal cord injury, would you recommend the same amount of protein? And they're like, per kilo active muscle mass? Possibly. But it, that then it comes, you know, because our recommendations are per kilo body mass, not per kilo active muscle mass. And see, that's where, you know, if you've got someone with a spinal cord injury and you look at their percent lean body mass and their percent body fat, because of the muscle atrophy, they're always going to have a higher percentage body fat. They'll, they'll probably have 40, 50% percentage body fat, which means that the active amount of muscle that they have is, is proportional to their total body mass is lower. So do you still apply the same formula? And we just don't know. We, yeah. we don't know this to those questions. Yeah, well, obviously, I mean, the whole concept of body composition becomes interesting, particularly mm. with the more bells and whistles approaches of, of things like DEXA, MRI, or even good old water displacement, plethysmography. I actually said that right. Wow. I, as yeah, I said, well plethysmography, I was like, how do we do that? Um, it, you know, uh, and of course, good old skin folds, summer skin folds, that sort of thing. But we'll come back to that in a minute. But we're talking about this concept of a well-stocked muscle and I would expand that to a well-supplied, you know, human being in terms of, of their overall nutritional requirements. We can be overly obsessed with, in sports, nutritional performance, talk about carbohydrates, fueling, glycogen resynthesis, power, strength, endurance. But what about their, uh, their needs as a human being, particularly when they might have additional complications because of their varying impairments? I, it's a pretty broad area, but... In terms of the challenges that are going to to sit in front of us when considering how to 
to feed and support and keep healthy this human being, what what are the main challenges that you that you can think of and have experienced um, as it relates to to feeding our our human being clients mm. here? Well, it goes back to energy needs a lot of it, and so some of these athletes have what we call a small energy budget. You know, their energy their metabolic rate is is lower, so they don't need as many calories. And, and again, that goes back to, well, if you're prescribing six grams of carbs and that just blows there, it defeated the purpose. So it's, everything always has to kind of get framed around well, what are the basic energy needs and how do I make sure that we're meeting all of our requirements? And one of the biggest challenges in a lot of instances, and particularly with our female para-athletes, is often their iron levels. So they if, if you think about how do you get, you know, a recommendation 20 plus milligrams of iron per day for a, a female athlete, for example, how do you get that in 2000 calories? And then how do you get that if their energy budget is 1600 calories? You've got less food to be able to get that same nutrient requirement out of. And similarly with vitamin D, with pretty much any of those micronutrients, when you've got a smaller energy budget that you're still trying to give them good balance, it just becomes challenging at times to meet their micronutrient needs without them just thinking that they have to think about food 24-7 and they can't live a normal life. Like they they want to be human beings and, and live a normal life as well. And so, you know, I think iron is probably the one that is, is often the most challenging. Vitamin D, probably you know, most people can't get their vitamin D needs in their diet alone anyway. So it becomes more a, a sunlight exposure. Um, so from a nutritional intake issue, I would say generally it's, it's iron is the big one. Calcium is probably the other big one, especially if you have someone who has any form of intolerance to dairy product. So look, I mean, obviously, you know, when you start working with a para athlete, you meet them, you know, as I said, those tools that we have called eyes and a brain and ears to listen to people, you know, you're going to learn a lot about the individual needs and challenges, as long as you're actually going to have a proper conversation and get the the trust, the buy-in, the relationship there is clearly a skill set that we need as as practitioners. And in the process of performing your needs analysis, your understanding of your athlete, another thing that you're going to presumably be confronted with um, more often than not, I'm guessing, is the very nature of their their disability, if you like, their impairment, their problem, whatever happened to them is going to be associated with medications, drugs, that sort of thing. Now, you know, when you're working with able-bodied athletes, you know, we're all about, oh, let's, you know, make sure that supplements are, you know, tested. We don't want any doping violations. We don't want any, you know, we don't want any problems with that. And of course, that is a completely different situation here. That athlete absolutely has to take those medications. What, what, what sort of, what sort of medications do you, you know, obviously it's very individualized, but what sort of things might we come across? And what are the implications, particularly from a nutrition and a performance perspective, should we bear in mind? Oh, man, they could open up a whole different can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll give you a little can um, opener here. We won't spend yeah. too long on it. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of things that you'll find, antispasmodics are a common one. 
So that's to try and control that degree of muscle spasm. And on the whole, there's probably very few interactions and, and issues you get with that. But you do need to know if someone is on an antispasmodic and when they're taking it. Are they taking it mostly at night so that they sleep? And fair enough, you know, but that means that during the day they're getting more spasm and you need to factor uh, in terms of their energy, for example. So, you know, understanding their medications certainly give you a lot of insight into some some of the, the varying parameters that they're, they're working with. Other ones, I guess, obviously they're not allowed to use diuretics, even if they get some degree of edema, which of them do so then they may be using other methods like compression socks and and things like that but there can be a lot of pain relief it's is probably the big one so pain neuropathic pain uh, lots of lots of reasons phantom limb pain there's there's lots of reasons why a para-athlete may be taking some form of pain medication and you know some of them have certainly looked at cannabinoids and, and CBD, which you know, is, is an interesting sort of avenue that we're keeping a close eye on. But it's the pain relief and that that can certainly have impact on mood state, can have impacts on appetite, can have impacts on a lot of areas that is, is really worth kind of understanding where that's what level of pain they experience on a day-to-day basis because pain is something that a lot of these athletes will just they just deal with it at the constant part of, of their day and understanding what makes their pain worse and and if there's any sort of strategy that can actually alleviate that pain so fatigue often makes pain worse so if you can alleviate as much of the fatigue component then then that can be a really useful thing to and in terms of drug nutrient interactions, are there any particular nutrients that are the most likely risk factors on this, you think? I haven't come across a really consistent sort of framework of, oh, if they're on this medication, then you're more than likely going to have this issue. It's probably the interaction between all the medications. And so some athletes will be on a number of medications and it's just understanding whether there's an interaction effect of all the, those medications together. So yeah, on, on an individual basis, there's, there's not too many that you'd be concerned about, but I think when they're on multiple medications. Yeah. And of course, no, I'm, you know, uh, I think it's just about being as aware as possible, but also recognizing the limits of not just your scope of practice, but your scope of understanding. And, you know, ideally they do have other well-trained, well-educated professionals supporting them who you can reach out to like their doctor or, or whatever. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if, you, if they do having a good conversation with the, that medical individual is I think a really useful thing to understand they can give you a slightly different perspective and maybe something that the athlete hasn't necessarily sort of spoken to you about that can actually give you insight to other areas of how they're dealing with their day-to-day life and yeah. I think you know that can be a, any anything that you can do in a team environment with with getting other professionals involved is is really valuable absolutely what well, I'm thinking right off the bat is trying to understand the the physical needs, you know, uh, for their training and their performance and ultimately their competition needs, you know, you, you, you want to be talking to their coaches and, and so on, but. And, and observing, like yeah. just getting, 
down if you can it's hard really hard for a practitioner like in in private practice but if you're in an environment where you can actually go down and watch them observe what they do in training observe what they do in that gives you so much information and 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 so much context like you know you look at quad tennis and how quad tennis is played as opposed to a, an able-bodied tennis game the, the the games themselves are much much shorter there's only usually two or three balls over the net for each game that those long rallies that you see in some of the the big tournaments you just don't see that in quad tennis the breaks between play tend to be a little bit longer and the game duration is a bit shorter and so you actually, if you look at it, there's a lot of really high intensity work, but there's also a lot of a lot of downtime. And so, you, if you didn't understand that, you would probably give them a lot more calories because you you're not really fully understanding what their sport is about. So, I think you know observing and understanding what that looks like is really important. Absolutely, and I look that goes to able-bodied athletes in many different sports doesn't it you know you think i, I work a lot with football players who so think uh oh you know it's a game of football that means completely different things if it's uh you know a, a saturday night uh, five-a-side game uh, or a, a well-meaning game of pretty decent players league three or whatever or you know all the way up to premier league or tournament football in particular you know it's a very different setup so being there and watching i completely mm. agree gives you a, a really great idea mm. in terms of being there we're working with people who will have worked out a lot of things for themselves in their home environment. And I think that is obviously an area you still want to have a look at, help them optimize and improve that. But particularly when we when we think about athletes, they go somewhere to compete. And a lot of those facilities are set up, you know, for, for decades to suit able-bodied people. But what are the what are the implications? of an incorrectly set up environment for these athletes and how can we play a role in, in, in improving that environment to minimize any potential negative impact? Uh, advocacy is always a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I think it's a, a, a good example that we can give is sit skiers or, or even skiers, full stop, alpine skiers. And, and this happens with able-bodied skiers. If you go, if you've ever been, there's not a lot of bathrooms there great for the guys they can find a tree usually but for the women they either have to ski down to the bottom of the hill and then get off their skis and go and find a bathroom and then you know they can jump off on a chairlift now if you've got someone who's a sit skier so someone who has either a double leg amputee or a spinal cord injury or some major that they can't physically stand on there they'll be in a, a bucket but they call it a bucket it's the best way of describing it on a single ski they've they're strapped in they have no access to their wheelchair or their crutches or their normal mode of ambulation unless they go down to the bottom, let alone finding an accessible bathroom to be able to wheel into. And so one of the big issues that we have is, is hydration on hill in training, that they will deliberately dehydrate because they can't get access to a bathroom. And we know that they're at altitude, they're in a very dry environment around snow, so their fluid needs are often you know, high because of the environmental conditions. They may not have great sweat rates, so they may not sweat a lot, but the environmental can create a situation of dehydrated. So the practical side of your brain then has to think about, well, how much do I push this fluid if in reality the outcome is that they then have an embarrassing accident 
because they've got no way of passing the extra flu that you're trying to to give them and so a strategy that you may need to use is okay do I give them small amounts of with high electrolytes to to kind of try and retain that fluid in their body do we work more on a post-training rehydration solution so they're not carrying that dehydration through for the whole day um, like that's where you have to think about well what is the best strategy for that individual and understand that that limitation of access is something that they have no control over but you've got to look after them and their dignity at the same time now you know there's also the risk of increasing the risk of urinary tract infections through that chronic dehydration so you know there's a health component there's there's lots of components that need to be considered and so the more you can kind of work with them on trying to get a little happy medium in there and and them understanding how that fluid how their ingestion frequency and volume and all of those how they can utilize that fluid they're all the things and conversations that you can have with them so that's just one sort of fairly simple example of of how you may need to think through the the practicality of what you're trying to get them to achieve you touched on something there that um, is clearly going to be a really important area and that is you know thermoregulation and obviously we we have our hydration strategies for able-bodied athletes and so on but the very nature of some of the impairments and some of the equipment devices i'm thinking you know supporting their day-to-day needs as well as the specific needs to compete in a specific sport like a wheelchair or whatever it involves more kit more equipment things that will impact their ability to thermoregulate appropriately i mean mm-hmm. do you have any particular sort of examples case studies or whatever in your head through your own experience or those of your colleagues that would be sort of interesting to discuss at this point as it relates to thermoregulation. Yeah, I mean, thermoregulation is a massive challenge in a number of athletes, not just spinal cord injuries. And often people think of spinal cord injuries because generally you, your sweat capability below the level of the spinal cord lesion is is non-existent in most individuals. And if you can't sweat, your body just heats up if under exercising conditions. But it also is a problem with amputees, with with MS, um, multiple sclerosis, like there's a lot of traumatic brain injuries. There's a lot of people who have, a lot of athletes who have issues with it. But I think, you know, one good example, you know, if you do sweat rate tests, so, you know, weigh them in, weigh them out, have a look at what their sweat rates are. We've done that in wheelchair rugby. And so wheelchair rugby is predominantly high spinal cord injuries. So mostly quadriplegic. And if you look at, athletes with quadriplegia and you try and do a sweat rate test on them it wouldn't be uncommon to have a zero result they don't sweat they may sweat a little bit on their eyebrow maybe a little bit on their hands and their face but otherwise they're not sweating do you give them fluid if someone's not sweating what's the point of giving them fluid I, you know, they feel hot and they want to drink because that's the automatic response and so some of the advice we've had to give is actually to reduce their fluid intake and find other ways to cool themselves down to control that that feeling of I'm feeling so hot because the risk of drinking too much and and you know we're talking about okay maybe they'll drink 300 mils an hour when they've got a sweat rate of 40 mils an hour 
okay, over a two-hour training period, maybe that's 500 mils of extra fluid that they've got in their system. Well, where's that fluid going? Is it going to their bladder? And how do they then release that? These, these are individuals who can't urinate voluntarily, so they'd have to go to a bathroom, catheterize themselves to release that pressure on their bladder. That also means transferring out of their competition chair into their day chair because their competition chair is most likely not going to get through a bathroom door <laughs> um, and also take all the taping off their hands that they've put on, yada, yada, yada. So you can imagine this is not something that happens in a two-second turnover. It's something that takes 15 minutes for them to do. The other thing that can happen is they can develop a, a, a quite a potentially dangerous scenario of autonomic dysreflexia. So if that bladder is distended, it's a noxious stimulus to the body. And what happens is that sends their blood pressure high to dangerous levels. And again, you don't want that. And so that's where you do need to manage their fluid intake for their safety and also for the practicality of it and not assume that, oh, you know, everyone needs fluid. And if they get dehydrated, they just need more fluid. Well, they, these guys just don't, they don't dehydrate from that reason. They may dehydrate for other reasons. <laughs> Don't dehydrate for that reason. So find other methods that work in terms of keeping them cool, keeping their body temp down. So whether that's a fan where they spray you know, water on their face with a fan in front of them to help cool, whether that's ice towels, whether that's perhaps a slushy in a very small volume, but be careful with the volume. But whatever it is, you cool them down rather than automatically thinking, oh, they've just got a bit more fluid so that they can sweat more. I mean, it's sort of mind-blowing, isn't it? I mean, I, I hope that aspiring performance nutritionists or sports scientists or whatever looking to support power athletes aren't like, oh, actually, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to go work somewhere else. I mean, the challenge, <laughs> the challenge is, you know, well, is particularly amazing opportunity for, you know, well-trained uh, performance nutritionists. It's just clear. There's so much that you can do to help your mm. athlete. But one area that, you know, we as performance nutritionists, sports scientists and so on, strength conditioning coaches, et cetera, but, you know, we are always interested in things like body composition. It's a useful tool to determine, you know, to baseline your athlete, you, you know, you're able to differentiate quality from well, functional from dysfunctional body mass and, you know, the, the impact of your nutrition strategies and training strategies on that functional muscle mass. And if you're overeating, mm. you're getting body fat and all this sort of thing. However, Obviously, there's challenges here when it comes to assessing body composition and how you use body composition to inform your practice, your advice, you know, and in my head, there's several challenges right off the bat. Obviously, there's the bells and whistles testing methodologies that we almost certainly won't have access to. And even then, you know, that's just for normal, able-bodied people. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm thinking DEXA and, you know, and so on. But we do have access to tools, particularly things like skinfold testing. Yep. Uh, but even then, you know, if you're looking at Isaac protocols, that has a very specific full body approach in terms of skinfold girths and and so on. What are your? It doesn't have to. No, exactly, and that's what I was asking mm. you to to think about now. So, what what are your yeah. thoughts on that, and how should we apply that? Well, I'm a level three Isaac trained anthropometrist, so I can teach you know Isaac methods to, to people. And I use my skinfold calipers on a regular basis. I don't necessarily do all the sites. You have to work out why do you want to measure and what do you want to measure and, and what's the most relevant tool to, to do that. So 
one thing with skin folds is converting it to percent body fat is meaningless um, and particularly meaningless in most of this population. I mean, yeah, you could do that with someone who's minimal level of, of impairment with cerebral palsy or their vision impaired or they're intellectually impaired. So their physical body is more like a normal able-bodied individual, but we still wouldn't do it because what you want to do is track over time. So what can I accurately and consistently track over time that is meaningful to this athlete? If we go back to your kayaker, would you do lower body skin folds on them where there's substantial muscle atrophy? Is it going to give you any relevant information? Where is the change most likely going to happen? It's most likely going to happen in their upper body where they're, they're more functional. And so I would select a set of skin folds and girths that is relevant, that I can measure consistently, that I can landmark accurately and repeatably. And so you modify it and then you just make sure you keep a note of what the modifications are. So if they're a right-sided, if their cerebral palsy affects their right side and they're getting, they've got less function on that side, swap over to the left side. If they're a spinal cord injured athlete, I don't get them out of their chair to landmark them. And if I was landmarking correctly for all landmarks, you'd have to, you'd have to get them lying on the floor to do that. I, I don't, I just do a upper body force skin folds. So tricep, bicep, subscap, abdominal, because I can landmark them appropriately. I can measure them and then, you know, flexed arm girth, a waist girth, and maybe a chest girth, you know, so it depends on what you're trying to measure and what change over time you're likely to see and where's the most relevant area that you're going to see that in. If you're using other methods, you just really need to understand what the, the assumptions built into that method are and when that's going to be violated in a, an individual. Or, and, you know, for example, with DEXA, DEXA is great for bone density, but if you've got a metal rod in your spine, there goes your bone density. Like it's, it's going to pick up the metal rod and say, you've got fabulous density in that bony area but it's not bone that it's measuring so you know there's i think the other thing that dexa assumes is a, a normal proportionality of structure and a lot of para athletes don't have that proportionality even individuals with sport, short stature for example their proportionality may be similar but it's shrunk down and so it's not what the dexa is expecting to see so is it going to read the same and, and interpret it in the same way. So I think they're the things you've got to think about before you actually then go, okay, this belt and whistle sort of thing. It's really yeah. truly understanding what are the assumptions? Are they going to be appropriate for this individual? And can I track something over time in a better way? And I think there's some simple things that you can do to track change over time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, we all love body composition you know in many different ways it's a great hands-on method particularly if it's something like isaac which in itself is an opportunity for you to interact with your athlete and have a good chat i always find that even in team sports where i work yeah. you know sometimes the, the 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 information that comes out of that is i can look at them i know he's in great shape for example but it's a good opportunity to have a quality conversation with that individual mm. yeah but but this whole issue of body composition, I, I, I've done my best to cover that in various podcasts. Uh, going back a few years with Sean Arendt, Professor Sean Arendt, we talked about test, don't guess, title mm. sort of gives that away. Dr. Julia Bone was on a few years ago where we talked about 
this idea of DEXA being um, the gold standard, maybe not just gold plated, mm -hmm. which is a great conversation yep. for people to listen to. And more recently, this past year with Graham Close, Professor Graham Close, we, we talked about his uh, group's paper on comeback skin folds, all is forgiven. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love these titles that these people come up with, <laughs> um, but it is a brilliant tool to inform practice. In terms of tools to inform practice when it comes to para athletes, apart from anthropometry equipment, what other tools spring to mind that you might uh, typically use in the field, Liz? Your brain. Your brain and your ears. Uh, your ears, I think, are the most just listening. Be willing to listen, to ask questions, have an inquiring mind and truly understand where they're coming from and without assumptions. You know, a lot of para-athletes, some of them are born with their impairment and so they've, they've lived with it their entire life and they've probably done some sport as a youngster and so they have a little bit of sporting history but you also have athletes who come in having acquired an impairment, maybe never done sport in their life and they've got no idea what you're talking about when you start talking high-performance sport lingo. So, you know, really understanding their background, where they've come from and, and in terms of tools, it's there's lots of tools, but you've got to find the one thing that's going to make a difference to that individual at that point in time, rather than throwing your entire toolbox at them. Just because it's there and it's available, it may not be relevant. And that, you know, as you say, that relevance and that context is so important with a para-athlete, as it is with every athlete. But take your time and, and find the one thing that is bothering them the most or that you feel you can have impact on and pull that out. And that could be something that's related to their practical side of things, you know, their ability to prepare a meal, their ability to go shopping. It could be a supplement, but it's probably not likely to be for a while. You've probably got a lot of food-related things that you can, can work with. It may be just the consistency and the timing of their eating around their training. There's lots of tools that you have. Find what their biggest issue is and use the most appropriate tool to address that. And then you'll gain a real and, and, and have a great relationship with Liz, you've summed up, I think, the key points very well there without my even asking you to sum up <laughs> key points. You know, it's like they say, uh, I guess uh, you've got two eyes and two ears for a reason, isn't it? You've only got one mouth because you need, you know, you need to get the, uh, the order of that perspective right. Mm. But look, in terms of ears, people have been able to listen to the podcast. And uh, I think that we've had a great conversation. Selfishly, Liz, I've just loved, loved the conversation. I got a lot out of it. And I know the listeners will. In terms of eyes, we will provide links to the various papers and your great book has really useful tools in the information toolbox that, that people can have. And once again, back to, to, to ears, your own podcast, Liz, just quickly, let's just quickly discuss your, your, your podcast. I don't want to selfishly have people only listen to my podcast. Um, I think people just <laughs> listening, people just listening to you will, will want to hear a lot more from you. So tell us about your podcast. So the podcast is called Parasports Nutrition. So if you look that up on pretty much any podcast platform, you should be able to find it. And it's really, it's, a, it's I'm trying to hit a lot of targets. I'm interviewing athletes. I'm interviewing coaches, practitioners, experts in the field. I want to try and showcase para sports. So we go through with the coaches, what is that sports of goalball? What is the sport of goalball? Who, what are the eligible impairments? 
what are the physical demands? What does training look like? What does competition look like? So we're trying to kind of give a little bit of an explanation of what each sport is, and we're working through that. We talk to the athletes about their experience, their background, some of their challenges, how they how they work their nutrition in with their sport. And then we also draw on the practitioners and the experts in terms of, for example, what is iron? I had a really good interview uh, about what is iron and iron deficiency and then why might that be an issue for a para-athlete and how can they approach you know, a, a management plan for that. So we always bring it back to a para perspective, but it's not always, the conversation isn't always around specific sports nutrition or, or para completely the overriding perspective. Brilliant. Well, look, I think it speaks for itself, your knowledge and expertise and your passion and your interest in it. So thank you very much for, for sharing that with all of us. If people want to find out more about you, Liz, you're, you, you, I know you're a little bit on social media, but you have a healthy relationship with social media by not being on it very much. Yes. <laughs> um, but you have a website and so on. So how, how can people find you if they want to access more information about you and your various outputs? Uh, they can probably find me on LinkedIn just under the name Liz Broad or on the Parasports Nutrition podcast website. Uh, they're probably the area in contact. That's great. I'll, I'll, I will link to those. And of course, for our listeners here at the Institute Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast, you can learn, uh, you can find this particular episode at our uh, website at www.iopn.com. Just click on the podcast and find this episode there. Of course, you'll find us on Apple iTunes and uh, Spotify and all the, the, the many different places you can find these podcasts and I am the host uh, of course Dr. Laura Bannock and it's been a real pleasure to have this conversation for everyone's benefit thank you so much Liz take care thanks Laurent